3: Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 109 of the coronavirus crisis, we have major developments tonight on multiple fronts. First, futures are surging right now. On word that a drug to treat the virus is getting good news in early data. Second, Boeing saying it will resume commercial airline production in Washington state next week. And finally, new details this evening on how the president wants to reopen the economy. We start, though, with the news in the war against the coronavirus. Stat News reporting this evening that Gilead's remdesivir trial is seeing what they call rapid recoveries. Joining us now, the man who broke that story, Adam Feuerstein. He is the senior writer for Stat News. Adam, it's good to have you on. Thank you for being here. Tell us what your reporting found.
4: Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so what we're reporting tonight is that uh, it's basically an early snapshot of a phase three clinical trial of the drug Remdesivir, as you said, that's being developed by Gilead scientists. And what we were able to obtain is, is, is a report from a, a, a hospital in Chicago, which has treated about 125 people with this drug in the clinical trial. And what they're, what they're saying and what they're showing from those data are, is a, a rapid recovery and some really, uh, very potentially, uh, interesting and encouraging results from the clinical trial. You know, the caveat here being, Scott, is that this is a snapshot of a much larger clinical trial. It's being run all over the world. Patients are being enrolled and treated in the United States and in Europe and in Asia. And so what we have here is just a snapshot, a glimpse of the study. Um, And what we really need to see, obviously, is the, the overall study results, which are coming soon.
3: When do you think we will get those, Adam? So these data for this trial and this trial enrolled specifically this trial
4: that we wrote about today enrolled patients with severe COVID-19. That study is supposed to have results read out by the end of the month. Um, A second study that Gilead is running is in moderate COVID-19 patients, and that study should have
3: results next month. The important thing about this study that you're reporting on is these rapid recoveries. Most of the patients who were treated, I understand from your reporting, were already discharged from the hospital. Is that right?
4: Right, so one of the things, and what really got us noticing this and thought that it was it's something that was important to report is that the patients in the study, what, what they were seeing, their observations that they were seeing in Chicago with the patients they were treating there was a, what is, was a rapid recovery. The patients were coming in and they were, they were getting well relatively fast and they were being discharged. Most of the patients were being discharged from the hospital within a week. Um, now, this study is looking at two different dosing durations of remdesivir. They're being treated either in, uh, for five days or for 10 days. And what they noted at the Chicago Hospital was that most patients that they're treated don't even need 10 days worth of treatment, that they're, that they're seeing patients are feeling better very, very quickly. And I, and I, did, I did interview a, a patient who participated in the study. He, he lives in Chicago. He was short of breath, all the classic symptoms of COVID-19 that you have heard about. He had to go to the hospital. And what he told me, and this is just, again, a single patient experience, but what he told me was is that essentially he started feeling better like a day after getting remdesivir. And he was in the hospital for four days. He got four days worth of treatment with remdesivir and he was discharged.
3: Amazing reporting tonight. It is moving the market. The futures in early trading. Adam Forrestine, thank you for your time. Adam's with Stat News, of course, a senior writer there. Let's bring in now Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is a CNBC contributor, the former FDA commissioner. Dr. Gottlieb, what do you make of this report from Stat News on Gilead's drug?
5: look, it's the um, the latest in a series of data that we've gotten about this drug that indicates that the drug's active in the disease. And I think that there's probably enough accumulating data at this point that the regulatory agency might be able to consider either making it available under an emergency use authorization or through accelerated approval. There's a, a randomized study conducted by the NIH, the National Institutes for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, that's now probably fully enrolled And now that that trial is fully enrolled, that really serves as a pivotal study that's going to tell us definitively how efficacious this drug is. And that could serve as a pivotal study to allow the agency to issue an accelerated approval if they wanted to on some of the accumulating data. There was also a data set published about a week ago in the New England Journal, albeit a non-randomized data set, looking at the drug in a setting of compassionate use, but also showed some encouraging results. It was matched against historical controls. And all this data really is, at this point, it doesn't prove anything definitively, but it's all suggestive of a benefit. And the regulatory threshold for approval under an emergency use authorization in a setting of a public health emergency really allows flexibility to approve products, especially if they're used in a setting where there's no alternative treatment and patients are likely to die. I will just close by saying I think that this drug, you know, my hunch all along, and we've talked about on this show, is that there's an indication that this drug is active in the disease Um, It's probably not a home run. It's probably not a cure, but it's probably something that used particularly in a setting of early disease, when patients have early symptoms, probably can be effective at mitigating uh, a bad outcome in a a number of patients. And so I think this could be part of an overall therapeutic armamentarium going into the fall or
3: going into the summer.
5: That makes us much better positioned to deal with COVID-19.
3: What does it tell you about what the broader study that's going on concurrently may show here? Well, what they got was one clinical trial site.
5: Uh, They got a a report from an investigator about the results in one site, and this is a multi-center trial. But that, along with other things that we've heard about this drug, other reports out of China and some of the data um, of use of the product in China, what you hear certainly anecdotally from physicians and what you've seen in the data sets that have been published to date certainly suggests the drug's active. It's not an optimal drug by any means. It has to be given intravenously. Um, Supply is going to be an issue. It's hard to manufacture there are issues with um, m- malfunction of uh, liver um, tests, so you get, a, you get a bump in your liver enzymes with this drug that's, uh, in most cases, um, self-correcting. They, they ultimately resolve. But it's not a, a perfect drug by any means, but oftentimes in these kinds of settings, when you have a virus that you're developing therapeutics against, your initial wave of drugs aren't perfect uh, therapeutics, but they work, and that was the experience with HIV. It was the experience with hepatitis C where the initial drugs that we developed against those diseases were not optimal drugs, but they worked in the disease, they helped certain patients, and ultimately we developed better better therapeutics. This is a drug remdesivir that we have a lot of experience with. It's been on the shelf for a long time, tried against Ebola, tried against SARS. And so there's an accumulated safety database. We understand the drug fairly well. And so that safety database coupled with the efficacy data we're seeing emerge about it could form the basis of an approval either under an EUA or accelerated approval sooner rather than later,
3: perhaps. A glimmer of hope. Nonetheless, Dr. Gottlieb, I want you to stand by. We'll be back to you in just a few minutes. I want to go now to Kayla Tausche. She is in Washington with more details on the president's guidelines for reopening the U.S. economy. Kayla.
2: Scott, President Trump and the coronavirus task force said that improving data on cases and hospitalizations in many states and communities should usher in a controlled economic reopening, with some states able to reopen within days. Though every state will be different, President Trump said ultimately the benefits of this reopening should outweigh the costs.
6: America wants to be open and Americans want to be open. As I have said for some time now, a national shutdown is not a sustainable long-term solution. To preserve the health of our citizens, we must also preserve the health and functioning of our economy. Over the long haul, you can't do one without the other. Cannot be done.
2: To guide states, the White House prepared a three-phase roadmap that would see gyms and large restaurants reopen with social distancing. Sporting venues with players but few fans and outpatient surgeries can resume in that first phase. In the second phase, schools and childcare facilities and bars can reopen with reduced capacity. Non-essential travel can also restart. And then in the third phase, if states do not see a rebound of cases, businesses that are open can increase staffing and senior homes can accept visitors. What will stay in place for at least the first two phases, social distancing, teleworking, and limitations on any activity for those in vulnerable populations. And employers are encouraged to develop new protocol for temperature and symptom checks. Scott, absent from the document the White House provided today, any dates or deadlines to go along with these phases? Sources say there were competing views within the White House on how much detail to provide here, and I'm told that the economic team privately had warned the president that keeping the entire economy closed for more than two more weeks would be catastrophic. Scott?
3: Big news, Kayla. Thank you very much. That's Kayla Towsley reporting Tonight from Washington for us for more on the reopening of the economy. Let's bring in Steve Odland. He is the CEO of the conference board and David Nealman. He is the founder of JetBlue Airways. Gentlemen, it's good to have you with us. Steve, to you first, your response to the president's plan this evening.
7: Well, I think these uh, principles are are very sound. I think that that we're right. We need to reopen the economy as quickly but as safely as possible. Clearly, there's no price that you can put on a human life. We don't want to risk the virus reaccelerating. But there's also a human cost to staying closed in psychological, other medical issues, and clearly economic. And so by shutting this down, we've created for ourselves the greatest economic disaster since the Great Depression. And we need to make sure that the cure isn't worse than the disease. So, you know, these ideas of opening geographically, where you have a fourth of the counties in the United States that have had no cases and 20 or 30 percent that have zero in the last week, geographically we can start to open. You can also open any business that is virtual, there's no reason to not operate a virtual. And then, you know, as long as you've got these social distancing uh, procedures, hand sanitation, masks and so forth, and that continues, then you can begin to open voluntarily, even broader than that. So I really endorse the guidelines of opening. We cannot keep this economy closed for the long term.
3: David, are we taking safety into consideration enough or are we moving too fast?
8: You know, you know, I think there there were a couple of things about the guidelines I really really liked. Uh, number one is the focus on those that are actually dying. <laughs> you know, and we've read in New York that 25 percent, I mean, across the country, 25 or even more percentage of the people are in nursing homes. You know, you could have flattened the curve 25 percent just by protecting nursing homes. So, so, so that's number one. And you know, number two, you know, in the guidelines, you know, m- making sure that. Um, you know we're protected and, and that's good, but I, one of the things that concern me about the guidelines and I'm trying to and, and I, I listened really intently I heard it all is you know I didn't hear anything about you know this two week decline you know th- this this virus is extremely contagious, and what we know from lots of studies I, I could sit and name ten of them that that I read every day that up to ninety percent of the people are, are asymptomatic, so it's very it's it's very difficult to contact trace. And so you have the spread amongst um, non, uh, you know, people who are not having any symptoms. So if someone jumps up, what do you do then? You know, because I don't think once we come out of, you know, kind of a quarantine or, you know, shutdown, I think it's going to be very, very hard for the numbers to continue to go down. Now, the good news is, is that now, now we have tests, antibody tests that so we can actually start doing surveying of people. There's going to be a test. It will come out any day now from Santa Clara County in California. There's other tests that are coming out all over the world that are showing the denominator is, is it could be off by as much as 20 or 30 times, which reduces the death rate by 20 or 30 times, which gets it down. So I think if we knew that for sure, I think the policy could this could be relaxed a lot quicker. And I think that's what's going to happen. I, I'm confident that's what's going to happen.
3: Steve, this this line that, that you you and others use, the cure can't be worse than the disease itself. It's a catchy talking point. I get it. But there's not enough testing as we speak right now. And to David's point, wouldn't the worst thing to be would be to open too quickly and then have to shut everything down again? That will crush the economy, won't it? You don't want to do that because that would uh, that would destroy all trust as well. So that's
7: clearly something that would be bad. But at the same time, you know, listen to what David's saying. I mean, if 90 percent of the people are asymptomatic, it means that the people who are affected are really in the vulnerable populations. We can deal with that. We can we can create the, uh, the distancing and, and continue to keep and protect our uh, nursing homes, the uh, people with uh, vulnerable situations with, uh, you know, immune deficiencies and so forth. But then for the rest of us who are, you know, 90 percent are asymptomatic, I, I suspect the, what they call the herd immunity is going to be enormous at this point. And this is why you know, David's point on the testing of the uh, antibodies becomes so important. But look, I don't think we should rush into anything. We don't want to risk lives. But at the same time, you have to take and account for the social costs on the other side of it. So we have to get going here in a metered fashion in the lowest risk area.
3: In other words, David, two extra weeks now would be better than two extra months in the fall, would it not?
8: Well, you know, like I said, I am confident, I've read 20 reports, I'm confident that when you take the new denominator and you divide it, um, what I'm saying is, first of all, fix the denominator, and then get to know the numerator. So the first step is doing the antibody testing, dividing, if you divided today's number by 20, we're close to what the mortality rate is for the flu in the U.S., but then we know that it's, it's very tough on some people with some certain underlying cases. There was a study done by John Ionides from Stanford that said if you're under 65 and healthy your chances of dying of COVID-19 are greater driving to work than they are getting getting COVID-19. Now we know people with COVID-19 are getting sick below 65. We know there's a car there's a load issue. We know all that stuff. So get to know that get to know the numerator, find out who's dying, find out who's most at risk. Those that have, you know, healthcare professionals that are constantly being bombarded fix the denominator, and then I, I think I think we, we don't need to worry about opening and closing because then we have to, the other thing I liked about the the about the plan the president had tonight was making sure the hospitals can handle it, but if you know the, the, the numerator, the denominator, and you know who's getting sick and you're protecting them, it's much easier to protect hospitals and know the rush. I mean, I'm I'm a long winded here, but, you know, when Governor Cuomo said he needed 30,000 ICU beds and 1% of the people were infected, that was a rational number, but what we knew is that he peaked out at about 5,000 ICU beds because you know, I, I believe when, when the testing comes out that you know, maybe 20 or 30% of the New Yorkers were already, have already been infected, have already had the antibodies.
3: Yeah, and Steve, if you're a CEO tonight, are you planning on testing everybody who comes in, your employees? Are you testing every single employee who comes back to the office? Are you testing every single customer, if you could, who comes into your store? These are the issues. You can't, and because a, the testing isn't available. It's
7: just the lab testing. We're just coming out with these, with these, uh, you know, tests to prick your finger, and you can get it in five minutes. But those, those aren't out there yet either. So I don't think you can put that on on employers. I think you've got to have still the local and state governments to, to give us guidelines here. Look, I think it's got to happen geographically. There's a lot of areas of the country which could contribute to more than half of the GDP if you that could open right now. But then maybe hotspots you know, like uh, Cook County, like uh, Monroe County, like uh, the, the New York City County areas, maybe you, you go a little slower there for the, high, for the uh, vulnerable populations. Go a little slower. But I think that the remdesivir, you know, the hydroxychloroquine with the z these are these are things that are showing promise. And, you know, as long as we have some, some sort of treatment to it and you know you're not going to die, then it's no worse than the common cold. It's no more risky. So, yes, we can't just say it's safe to go back in the water if the sharks are still there. But if the sharks have gone away, you can say it's safe to go back in the water. It doesn't mean the sharks aren't in the
3: water. It just means that they're not close to you. And I think we have to approach the illness the same way. Here. Even the medical experts, though, suggest that to use your uh, analogy, the sharks are going to be with us for an awfully long time. Perhaps they come back uh, in mass in, in the fall. Gentlemen, it's good to have you with us tonight. I appreciate it very much. David Neilman, Steve Od- Odlin, we'll talk to you again soon. Let's bring back in Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's with us now. So we've had a chance to see the president's guidelines, Dr. Gottlieb. They're going to come in three phases. What do you make of them tonight?
5: Well, let me just, if I can pick up on the conversation you just had, if we look at New York City, for example, the you know, uh, guest was talking about the denominator. If you assume every single New Yorker had uh, COVID-19, all eight, 8.399 million New Yorkers were infected with COVID-19, The case fatality rate with 11,000 people dead in New York would be about 0.14 percent, which is more than seasonal flu. Seasonal flu is anywhere from 0.05 percent to 0.1 percent. If you assume about a million New Yorkers had COVID-19, which is probably a fair assumption at this point, I I would submit I think probably about a million New Yorkers have had it, even though we've only diagnosed 100,000 people. We're probably only diagnosing one in 10 to one in 20 people. But if you assume 100,000, a million people had it, then the case fatality rate in New York right now is above 1%, um, and and it's overwhelmed the New York City healthcare system. So that's the pathogen we're dealing with. This is a fearsome pathogen, make no mistake, and I agree that we're undercounting the denominator, but even if you allow for the fact that we're undercounting the denominator by a factor of 10, you're still looking at something with a case fatality rate that's 10 times worse than flu, which is what we've been saying all along. As far as the guidelines from the president tonight, I think they're by and large in line with what we expected and what we've been talking about on the show for a number of nights and that they're broad guidelines to the states that give the states a lot of latitude and I think are wholly consistent with what the governors are considering doing right now within their own states. There's a couple of things on there that I think states are going to go a different way when the guidelines talk about reopening large sports venues. I suspect most states are going to exercise more caution, especially in phase one, what the guidelines describe as phase one. I think when the guidelines talk about the ability to reopen gyms with proper sanitation in place, I suspect a lot of states are going to keep um, entertainment types of venues closed for a longer period of time until they make sure they can safely return people to work. I think the priority is going to try to be to return people to offices, to shop floors, to, to um, you know industrial jobs, manufacturing jobs, and make sure you can do that in a safe fashion and not see an
3: uptick in cases before you start opening up Um, entertainment types of venues. Elective surgeries I'm looking at in terms of phase one, which obviously had been put off or canceled uh, or not allowed altogether to make room in the hospitals for those who needed it for COVID. Those can resume as clinically appropriate. Is that a good idea? Well, I think it's it's something that's appropriate in the
5: setting of, you know, declining infection if you think that you have the hospital capacity to allow for it. Remember, the guidelines specifically state the importance of making sure you have capacity back in the healthcare system. There's going to be some places of the country that are so overwhelmed by this, the healthcare systems have been so overwhelmed that they're not going to have the reserve capacity to resume um, non-urgent procedures for a longer period of time. And I'm thinking particularly of New York and other hard-hit cities like New Orleans. But in other parts of the country, we've seen where we haven't seen a lot of spread um, where the healthcare systems haven't been burdened, and a lot of Midwest hospitals right now are very empty. Those hospitals can probably think about how to safely return elective procedures to the hospital setting with heightened infection control procedures to make sure that the virus isn't going to spread within within an institutionalized settings. But um, there are a lot of parts of the country that uh, haven't been hard hit by this, where there hasn't been spread, where the hospitals do have reserve capacity because they haven't been overwhelmed by cases coming in. And remember, this is a, this is a very diverse nation, and the experience of this virus across the nation has been highly variable. And so I think that you're going to see Governors take a tailored approach and mayors take a tailored approach based on what's happening in their
3: specific regions. Let me ask you a quick question before we go, if I could, Dr. Gottlieb, on the origins of this virus. And NBC News is reporting tonight that U.S. intelligence is investigating the possibility that the virus came from that lab in Wuhan and it was released accidentally, perhaps from a person there who may have been infected and then spread it. One official telling NBC News this evening it's a possibility, though, not the most likely possibility. What do you think?
5: Well, I think that sounds about right. It's a possibility, but not the most likely possibility. Um, that, that possibility has never been discharged. And our senior officials who have seen the raw intelligence uh, have never been willing to refute that publicly. So I think that it's something that until we get the source strains and understand what the index case was, and are able to sequence that index case, we're not going to know for sure. But that lab always had a bad reputation for controls. There were articles written about that lab when it first opened, um, about concerns around biosafety in that lab. There were now State Department uh, communications that were leaked to the Washington Post that seemed to affirm that. That lab always had a troubled reputation, and we know that the, that lab was doing experiments with coronaviruses. And so the possibility that someone accidentally infected himself with the virus because of the poor controls in that lab and became
3: patient zero, I don't think can be fully discharged. Dr. Gottlieb, good to talk to you as always. We'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Now to our other big story this evening, Boeing. Phil LeBeau joining us with that news. Boeing going to start commercial airline uh, work again next week. It is big news, Phil. The Dow is jumping in part on that news this evening. What can you tell us?
9: Sure, Boeing shares are up, what, 8 or 9% after hours, and for good reason. This is one of four key issues that have been hanging over this stock this week. They are resuming commercial airplane production next week. This will be at the plants out in the Puget Sound area in Washington State. So, again, this is one of those questions that people had. When will the plants get back up and running, at least beginning next week out in the Washington State area? The other question, Scott, what happens with production and staff levels? Clearly, we're looking at a smaller airline industry over the next couple of years around the world. Will Boeing bring down its production rates on wide-body planes? Will it reduce staff by as much as 10%? These are questions that many people are hoping to get answers to over the course of the next couple of weeks. What about government and private loans? They're still waiting to hear what the terms will be on any government loans from the Treasury Department, and then there's the big question that really has been hanging over this company for more than a year, and that's the 737 MAX and when it will be recertified. Remember, Boeing's order book tops 5,000 commercial airplanes. About 25% are the wide-body planes that Boeing will resume work on next week. Scott, the big thing is within two weeks, we will get Boeing's Q1 earnings That is going to be the biggest question of all. What is their guidance as they head into the second and third quarters? That is
3: Phil LeBeau reporting our third big story tonight against again, one of the stories that are causing futures to jump in the early trade. Phil, thank you very much for that. Well, if you're watching tonight and have personal concerns about managing your money and your health during this pandemic, certified financial planner and medical doctor. Carolyn McClanahan from our CNBC Financial Advisory Council is waiting to answer your questions via Facebook right now with our very own Bertha Coombs. To ask a question, go to facebook.com CNBC. We're just getting started on this CNBC special report. Lots more news is ahead on Markets in Turmoil.
6: Why are millions of critical pieces of medical gear for our frontline workers made by U.S. companies? Sitting in Chinese warehouses tonight. Plus, 22 million jobs lost in the past month. The ramifications for the economy. Before the break, images from around the country. On the 109th day of this global pandemic.
10: On the horizon for financial markets, at PGM, it's a question that over fourteen hundred investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. Today, pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager.
3: Welcome back. Here are some other headlines. There are futures right now. Take a look at that. The Dow futures right now at open better than 840 points. That on the back of that promising Gilead news. Boeing saying that it's going to start commercial airline production out in Washington state next week. The Nasdaq futures higher by some 200 points S&P by nearly 90 states continuing to work together on their reopening plans. A new coalition is forming among Midwestern governors following the lead of the East Coast and the West Coast. Facebook canceling all gatherings of 50 or more people until June of next year. And Dubai's Emirates Air is conducting blood tests on passengers in the airport before they fly. That's according to the airline results. They're available within 10 minutes. The Wall Street Journal reporting today shipments of critical medical supplies, including parts needed to make ventilators, have been delayed in China. Kate O'Keefe is one of the reporter's on that story, she joins us now, Kate. It's so good to have you with us on what caused a considerable amount of outrage when I read the story. I couldn't believe this was the case. Tell us what your reporting found.
0: Great, thank you. Um, so what we saw in our reporting is that there's a bunch of huge u s companies that are unable to get critical supplies to fight the virus out of China. so, these companies include Owens and Minor. They're not able to get two and a half million masks out of China right now. Perkin and Elmer, Perkin Elmer can't ship 1.4 million test kits. 3M is also having delays with shipments, so it's really causing a bit of a, a bit of trouble.
3: We're talking about circuit boards for ventilators from GE. You mentioned uh, 3M and how they're trying to get their products here. There are so many companies that you reported on. We're talking millions of products that were literally sitting in warehouses in China made by U.S. companies manufactured in China. I'm trying to figure how this is possible. I'm wondering what your reporting has elicited in terms of any response from uh, the government here or any of the companies that you mentioned in your story.
0: Right, so the Chinese government this month implemented some additional export restrictions They've said that they did that to um, ensure quality control, Um, but there's also some concerns that, you know, it's just holding up exports unnecessarily, and and that's the view of the State Department here. You know, they welcome quality control, but they're also, you know, in need of these supplies.
3: Is there anything that the State Department can do about it?
0: Well, (laughs) That's a good question. It's, it's tough. I mean, in these, in these situations where, you know, there's a global pandemic and each country needs, um, its own supplies, each country can sort of implement policies as they see fit, you know, and we're seeing countries around the world, uh, tighten up on export controls. Um, it's just that when China does that, it's particularly impactful because China makes so much of the world's supplies. So when they're not letting those supplies out, Uh, many many people are impacted
3: even from US companies Kate O'Keefe appreciate your reporting and your appearance tonight on our program thank you we'll talk to you again soon there's plenty still ahead on this CNBC special report markets in turmoil
6: more than 20 million people have filed for unemployment in the past month but the economic pain is not the same everywhere and how one mattress company made the shift and is doing its part to help on the front lines. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back.
11: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their US oil and gas production and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.
10: How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.
6: The numbers are sobering.
10: Initial jobless claims up 5,245,000, and continuing claims rocketing up to 11,976,000.
6: As the president has his plan to reopen the economy. Our team of experts now agrees that we can begin the next front in our war, which we are calling Opening Up America Again. And that's what we're doing. We're opening up our country. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner.
3: It's good to have you back with us. Let's take you right to the board, show you the futures which are soaring right now. On news that Gilead's drug to treat coronavirus is apparently showing promise in early studies. Gilead shares are higher after hours in their own right. As our shares of Boeing, which says it will resume production in phases starting next week. That stock surging, helping the Dow with its big gain in the early trade for futures. As for today, the Dow and S&P and Nasdaq were all higher. The Nasdaq was the best performer, and that's been the trend of late. The U.S. economy still wiping out 10 years of job gains in the last month. Steve Leisman joining us now with more on these numbers. As Steve, we're talking stock numbers,
12: but these are the numbers that are hitting home and hitting hard. Yeah, it's quite a contrast, Scott. While the news seems to be good on the medical front, uh, the president talking about partially opening up parts of the economy and the stock market doing well. The economic data is just absolutely awful. And there'll be ramifications for this into the future from the numbers we've seen today. 5.2 million Americans filed for new unemployment claims today. That brings the total to $22 Over the past several weeks Uh, and there was also bad data on manufacturing, bad data on housing. Uh, You can see the jobless claims there up up 5.2 million. The Philly Fed survey down 56 points. Haven't seen that since 1980. Housing starts declining by 22 percent. Haven't seen that since 1983. Now you can see the trajectory of jobless claims right there. It's gone up to as high as 6.6 million and is tacked down each week. What we don't know though is Are fewer people really losing their jobs, or are the state unemployment offices being overwhelmed? And one thing we see, we did some exclusive uh, calculations here, Scott, and we looked at unemployment uh, unemployment claims as a percent of the labor force. It's kind of a proxy for the unemployment rate, 21% in Michigan, one out of five workers in Michigan has filed for unemployment claims, and that goes all the way down to 15%, 2.8 million claims in California. But some states, it's much, much lower. You can see Florida, 6%, Texas, 7%. There are are, uh, reports of millions of Floridians who have called for help to file for unemployment claims, and those calls going unanswered. So some of this may be yet to come. Additional claims may be yet to come as unemployment offices begin to process these claims. What does it mean for the economy? It means reduced consumer spending, reduced overall economic growth in the at least months ahead and we don't know about whether or not quarters ahead. We'll have to start to think about, Scott, just tonight, what this means if some states do open, if that can mean a near term rebound to parts of the economy. We do know though that Steve, even the states that do reopen because the hotspots
3: are in the biggest cities related to GDP, that GDP is going to remain depressed even when we reopen, because the New Yorks and the Los Angeles and the Detroits of the world are not going to reopen theoretically, anytime soon.
12: That's right, Scott. And, and you know, the president has talked about this in war terms. Well, you know, the second quarter is a write-off. I think the, the, the estimates are down like 30 percent, unheard of declines. The battle is about the third quarter now, Scott. And the battle is about the third quarter when it comes to the stock market, when it comes to investors, when it comes to uh, health and all other aspects, which is, can we get to a point where we have a good rebound in the third quarter, and that's going to depend a lot upon what happens in the second quarter and the next several weeks. How much of the economy can be reopened, and then again, how much more of the economy still remains to be shut down. Tough
3: numbers any way you slice it. Steve, thank you. That's Steve Leisman. Reporting on that staggering jobs number today. We appreciate that. Let's bring in now Bryn Talkington, managing partner at Requisite Capital Management. Jim Labenthal as well. He's the chief equity strategist with Sarity Partners, also halftime contributors, as many of you know. Bryn, I begin with you. Our, our discussion has, more, has changed a bit this evening to where I was going to go with all of you now. So what do we make of this Gilead news? You have the Boeing news as well. The president has laid out his plan. Futures are surging. What does it all mean?
11: Well, I mean, I think we have good days and we have bad days. And, you know, the Gilead Res has been out there for a while. And so it's wonderful to see, you know, in the Chicago hospital that they're seeing such great results. And I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, as investors, a lot of us have a lot more idle time And I think an idle mind is the devil's workshop, and we tend to go to these horrible headlines. But the reality is, is, you know, the ingenuity is there from these companies. It's going to take patience that Boeing is going to start, you know, start reopening. I think ultimately you're going to see, you know, in these individual cities, whether it's Houston where the Starbucks has already been open, um, and around the country where you're going to see these smaller openings, and I don't think you're going to see a big opening across across the country, but it is little green shoots that we see out there. And I think ultimately investors need to have a have a plan for things being less worse, not better, just less worse.
3: OK, Jim, those viewers who watch halftime know that you're sitting in 10 percent cash now. You are waiting for a pullback to deploy some of that capital. And maybe some of our viewers are doing the same. But what now with the news that we've brought tonight on multiple fronts? How does that factor into your thinking about the stock market?
13: Um, I'm going to sit tight for now, Scott. I mean, it is good news, but the more I think about it, the more I just want to temper things here. Um, at the heart of the problem for the economy is that we have to be socially distant. I'm really happy to hear the news at Gilead. I mean, that is progress, but that doesn't keep people from catching the coronavirus. And I, I think until we have a vaccine, it's going to be difficult for people to be in close proximity to one another. So that means airplanes can't be full. That means offices can't be full. Restaurants can't be full. Those are the sort of things that will hold the economy back lead us into a U-shaped recovery. I don't want to be a negative Nelly here. Um, you know, the U-shaped recovery is reasonable, particularly with what the Fed and Congress are doing to support the economy. Um, but I think the V-shaped recovery is just too much for me uh, to really sink my teeth into. But I love look, I love the news on Boeing. I have to look at the other side, though, and say the problem right now isn't that the airline industry doesn't have enough planes, it's that it doesn't have enough passengers. And that's at the heart of what Boeing's got to deal with.
3: Good to see manufacturing, though, picking up at least uh, in, in some sense. Bryn, lastly to you, the, the Gilead news, Does it make it more difficult now to be more negative on the market? I I get that there's this disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. The stock market's gains do not reflect the pain on Main Street or anywhere close to what Steve Leisman and I were just discussing about these jobless claim numbers. But news like Gilead can be meaningful in the more medium-term view of the stock market if it's sustainable.
11: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the stock market is a market of stocks. And so if you look at the financials, they're down 30 percent. Small caps are still down 30 30%, percent. 30%. Um, really, it's the big tech names, you know, that have held up the QQQs, NVIDIA. You know, we've talked about them many times. And so I think it's like individual securities and in different sectors um, tell two different stories. And so I think ultimately with a financial still down 30, you know, the Gilead is a good, it's been out there for a while that Remdesivir was a good drug. It's nice that these smaller test um, cases are coming out positive, you know, but ultimately I don't know if we need a vaccine or just antivirals because it seems like if you look at the studies, everybody, the population all has it. And so that being said, I think you take one day at a time, but you're as an investor, you have to be pragmatic, be flexible, Don't be dogmatic here and just dig your heels into what you think is going to happen. Just take the news and have your narrative and be patient. And I think patience is the best way to get through this.
3: We'll see both of you back on the Halftime Report, I'm sure, soon. Thanks to you both, Bryn Talkington and Jim Labenthal, tonight. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil.
6: From the bedroom to the hospital room, how one mattress maker is helping out In the fight against the coronavirus, before the break, images from around the world on the 109th day of the coronavirus crisis.
3: Welcome back. Lisa Sleep is a direct-to-consumer mattress company, which has now pivoted its business to address the demand for hospital beds. Joining us now is that company's CEO, John Replogle. John, it's good to see you tonight. Tell me about this pivot that your company has made.
1: Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. Lisa is a small direct-to-consumer mattress company. And what we realized is there's an acute need and a shortage for hospital beds. And as soon as we realized that we pivoted the company, we put together a complete kit of a bed, a mattress, a pillow, uh, and uh, a waterproof topper. And we've now supplied over 4,000 of these bed kits uh, to a network of hospitals, uh, including a donation of 20,000 masks.
3: That's an amazing story uh, (laughs) of what what companies of all sizes are trying to do to help uh, deal with this crisis. Give me a little information, if you would, about your, your company. How many employees do you have? Did you have to lay anybody off when this news first hit? How are you dealing with the crisis yourself?
1: Yeah, we, we've responded in three ways. The first is to care for our employees. The second is to conserve cash. And the third, then, is to find the opportunity and the challenge, as I illustrated, uh, with the hospital beds. You know, we have about 50 employees. and fortunately, we've not laid anyone off yet. Uh, We have asked everyone to take a 20 percent pay reduction, uh, which was critical. And we've applied for the PPP and we're still awaiting those funds.
3: Tell me about that. I was going to ask you about the the PPP. So when did you apply for it? Uh, How many days ago has it been? And you've yet to receive the money, it sounds.
1: That's correct. It's been uh, a much needed uh, care line and yet a very frustrating process. We applied about two weeks ago, the first time. The first day that we could apply, we worked with Wells Fargo, and I have to say they just, they couldn't get their act together. Uh, So we ultimately pivoted to a local bank, village bank in Virginia. They have been a godsend. Uh, Our application has now been accepted. We're waiting on $900,000, which will afford us about two months runway, Uh, but we don't have the money yet. And so we are waiting. We're told it'll come every, any day. And it could not come soon enough.
3: When you heard the news that the fund had run out of money, the $349 billion, I know, I know you laugh. I, I, I'm sure you weren't laughing when you heard that news, though.
1: My heart sank. We, we literally panicked. It, those funds are the difference between life and death for small businesses like ours right now. And we were so relieved when there were added funds and the cap was removed. And uh, we're just, uh, again, fingers crossed that we will get these funds so that we can continue to do the work that we're doing, serving our consumers, but also helping hospitals and and others in need at this dire time.
3: We appreciate so much uh, what you're doing. We wish you and your, and your company. Well, thank you so much. That's John Replogle joining us. He is the Lisa sleep CEO. We'll get you caught up on all the headlines when this CNBC special report markets in turmoil continues. On day 109 of the coronavirus pandemic, here are the latest headlines tonight. The president releasing guidelines for states to reopen. Gilead's drug, Remdesivir, reportedly showing early promise as a treatment for coronavirus. And 5.2 million more Americans file for unemployment claims. Just staggering numbers. Let's give you a look at some other numbers right now. The futures, it is early. A volume is light, of course. The Dow futures, though, would open higher by more than 700 points. S&P and NASDAQ following suit with strong gains of their own. Go to CNBC.com all night long for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and, of course, the virus. We are back tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern with the path forward for small business. The profit, Marcus Lemonis will join us. We're looking forward to that. For all of us here at CNBC, I'll see you back on the halftime tomorrow at noon. I'm Scott Wapner. Please be well. Shark Tank is next.
10: How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course, where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.